All right, as you grab a seat, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 40. Um, Isaiah chapter 40, some of you know that we've been walking through this Old Testament prophecy book of Isaiah. I hope it's been an encouragement. I'm here tonight for one reason, that's to be an encouragement to your heart, an encouragement to your soul. Um, And and in order to encourage you tonight, I want to begin tonight with a a simple question. And uh, as you're turning to Isaiah 40, I want you to think about this question. Here's the question. What is the most repeated command in the Bible? Now, now, this is one that if you've been around church, you might kind of have some awareness of this, but, but if you're newer to church, you might actually think the most repeated command in the Bible is to worship God or to pray, and that's all over the Bible, but it's not the most repeated command. Or you might think it's a moral thing, like you know, sexual commands or, or not using foul language or, or, or what you're supposed to do in relation to one another, but that's not actually the most frequent command. You might think it's the command to love one another, and that's a central command of the Bible, but it is not the most repeated command. Simply put, it's this, the most repeated command in the Bible is do not worry. It's said a million different ways, but in hundreds of verses, we see do not be afraid, do not worry, do not be anxious, do not panic. It's like over and over and over again, God wants to make this point, you do not have to worry. Like God makes this point over and over again. And these verses are just a small sampling of the hundreds of verses you will find across the scriptures, commanding us, telling us, instructing us not to worry. Now, here's what I've learned. In my years of pastoral ministry, I have learned that this is probably the one command of the Bible that you and I feel comfortable disobeying, but not calling sin, right? Like we feel comfortable being like, no, I'm not going to obey that, but it's not sinful. And we do this with nothing else. Like if you see in the Bible, it says, do not lie to one another. And you lie to your roommate about who actually finished the ice cream. You would go, you know what? Okay, guilty. That's sin, right? Or, Or if the Bible says, do not steal. And you stole from your parents, you stole money out of their wallet and someone called you on it. You might be embarrassed, but you would go, you know what? That's sin. But then we have the nerve to turn around and be like, God, your most frequent command, I'm not going to obey that. But don't you dare call that sin. So see, we have this tendency to dismiss this one as not a sin issue. Uh, And yet I just want to say this clearly tonight. Now, however uncomfortable this might make us, I want to be clear tonight that habitual worrying is sin. It's sin. Now, now you'll notice a word I, I put in there to modify it. I said habitual worrying. I want to explain that because here's what I'm convinced of. All of us are going to have moments of life where we're afraid or anxious or worried, where that hits us. And I'm not convinced the moment it hits us is sin. It's like this. uh, If my four-year-old girl is playing on the playground and she's climbing up one of those ladders and she turns back and she's not really looking and she's about to teeter off the edge and collapse into the ground and my heart starts racing and I run over to her to catch her because I'm worried she'll fall. I'm not convinced that's like, God, I repent of that moment, right? I'm not convinced that's sin. Uh, Like for all of us, we're going to have moments that hit us where we're overwhelmed with something. Maybe it's a moment even in school where you just kind of get assigned something and then suddenly your heart rate just starts to rise of how am I going to get this done? Maybe it's the moment where your parents tell you that one of them has cancer and it just hits you and you're just like, you're worried and you're afraid and you're overwhelmed and you're anxious. So, So here's what I'm convinced of. In those little moments where worry hits us, that is not the moment of sin. But here's the moment of sin. The moment of sin is where we take that worry that hits us and we start to listen to the voice of that worry rather than the voice of our God. That's when sin comes in. See, if I 
see my daughter and she's falling on the playground and I have a moment of, oh no, I got to go catch her. I don't think that's sin. But if I'm constantly in paralyzing fear that my daughter is going to fall off a jungle gym or or fall into the wrong crowd or or not thrive or be bullied or be left out or be teased at school and everywhere I go and everything I do, I'm worried and overwhelmed and concerned about my daughter. No no matter how I justify it as love for my daughter, I am walking in habitual worry and therefore I'm walking in sin. The, 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 the person in this room who's in school and it's like your whole life is worry and stress and anxiety and you're just constantly at a 10. You're habitually worrying about your classes and your grades and your marks and if you're going to get into the right grad school because if you don't get into the right grad school, you won't get the right job and if you don't get the right job, you won't have the right life and everything will be ruined because of this one test you're taking right now. That habitual kind of worry is you walking in disobedience to God's command not to worry. It's the person in this room who knows uh, that the economy is precarious, all right? That's not just true now with weird things going on in the world. This has always been the case. Your life, your financial life has always been a house of cards. Sorry to let you know. It always has been. And it always will be. But the person who's just in constant stress and fear that the economy is going to collapse and you're going to lose your job and you're going to lose your apartment and you're going to have to move back in with your parents, which sounds worse than death. You know, like you're just there and you're just like, what am I going to do? Like that kind of habitual worry is the exact kind of thing God is commanding you against. And it is sin. What's my point? I think it's important that we be the type of people who will identify that there's a kind of stress, anxiety, worry that hits us. But then there's a kind of stress, anxiety, and worry that we walk in habitually as a lifestyle, and we are called to reject that. Now, here's what I know when I say this. When I say that worry is a sin, I think some of you are going, oh, great. Well, now I'm a worrier, and now I'm worried about my worrying. I'm always afraid, and now I'm afraid about being afraid. I'm an anxious person. Now I'm anxious about my anxiety. Anyone know what that's like? Like it just builds and builds and builds. You're like, oh no, Brian, don't say it's a sin. But here's what I want to convince you of tonight. The best news I can tell anyone in this room who walks in habitual and chronic fear, worry, and anxiety is that the fact that we are calling it a sin is good news for your life. It's good news. And can I tell you why? Because if worrying is just a personality trait, then you are forever stuck in it. If that's just who you are, I'm just a worrier. My mother was a worrier. Her mother before her was a worrier. We have on a long line of worriers. I'm just a worried person. I'm just anxious. It's just who I am. If that's who you are, if it's a personality trait, just like you having blue eyes or you being tall or short or any of these types of things, if it's just a part of who you are, it's forever going to be part of you. There's no hope. The least hopeful thing I could say to you tonight is some of you are worriers by nature, so just live that way forever. Because really, when I say forever, I mean forever. Well, like I was talking with Brian Williams about this before. We talked about, listen, if worrying is a personality trait that's just part of who you are, you get to worry for all of eternity in heaven. Anyone want that? Anyone excited about that? Of course you're not. Why? Because if worrying is a personality trait, then you are forever stuck. But if worrying is a sin, then by God's grace, you can be set free from that. That's what God can do. So if I'm walking in habitual worry, this kind of chronic, always worried, always stressed out, always anxious about every little thing going on in your life, here's what I want to do tonight. I want to help set you free by the power of God's spirit, by the power of his word, by the truth of what Isaiah is going to tell the people of God. Because listen, if you've kind of tracked with our series so far, uh, the people of God aren't doing so well, okay? It's not like they're these shining examples, these moral exemplars of what it means to be faithful to God. They're just a complete disaster, like a dumpster fire that's on fire, okay? That's the people of God. 
And yet God is going to step in and say, in the midst of all of this worry and concern and anxious thought, this habitual worrying, I have something to say to you. And I want you to see this here in Isaiah 40. So if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. Here's what it says. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, starts this way. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now, a lot of commentators, when they read through the book of Isaiah, will see the first 39 chapters kind of like I described. Like the first 39 chapters are Isaiah going like, listen to me, people, you are terrible at this, right? It's Isaiah confronting the people of God and the prophets of God would often confront the people of God. And then they would do what we see in the rest of the book of Isaiah, starting in chapter 40. Then they would comfort the people of God. And here's what we see in the very beginning of the 40th chapter, this turn in this entire book. God says, comfort my people, comfort, comfort for my people. But like in other words, the thing God is going to say in the beginning of the second part of the book of Isaiah is this, that you do not need to panic. You do not need to worry. God is comforting us saying, no, no, no. I know you're stressed right now. I know you're anxious. I know you're worried about the world. I know you're worried about the economy. I know you're worried about your family. I know you're worried about your future. I know you're worried if you'll ever get married, but listen, let me comfort you tonight. And here's what I want to show you in Isaiah 40, like in the actual text we'll read tonight. I want to show you seven reasons not to worry. Seven reasons tonight. So if you're taking notes, you can write down these seven, but I want you to see these seven reasons not to worry because if habitual worrying, this kind of chronic thing where I'm always stressed out and worried is a sin, I want to show us seven reasons that we don't have to live that way anymore. Look at verse two here. It says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Like in other words, verse two begins with this, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Like these people that Isaiah has just been hammering on, he goes, by the way, also your God is tender toward you. I think some of you have a conception of God that has never been tender. So you think of God as cold and distant and angry and mean. And for some of you, it's because that's what your father was. And he was always angry and he was always mean and he was always distant and he was never close. And so you've taken your father and projected that upon God. And here's the God who says, I'm the God of all things. I will not be negotiated with. And yet what does he call himself? Tender. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Like in other words, she's gone through a lot and yet God's going to redeem and rescue. And then what does he say here? That her sin has been paid for. And then how is that described? That she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. Now, this is an idiom, which is kind of a figure of speech in the ancient world. And here's what it means to receive double. So um, in the ancient world, they did not have like credit scores or systems of tracking debt. It was a lot more localized than how they would figure out if someone was deeply in debt. And here's what would happen. Uh, let's imagine I am living in this little village in this little house, and I have incurred a ton of debt. I've taken out more than I'm able to pay back, and I'm not paying back my debt. So I'm in debt, and I'm in default on my debt. Here's what they would do. They would go up to the, the door of my house. This is the door in this in analogy. And they would put a piece of paper up. And they would put a nail through that paper. And then what they would do on the very front door of my house is they would write down all of the things I borrowed money for but haven't paid back. So they'd write back, like, he borrowed money for a new pair of shoes. He put this new, like, iPhone on his, uh, on his credit card. He bought a Tesla, which is, like, way too much for him. Like, he can't afford all this, right? And here's this list. And why would you put this list on your front door? Because it tells everyone that this person should not take out any more debt. 
Because if you're saying, hey, that person wants to borrow from me, but there's a list of 10 items they haven't paid back, you're walking in that shame, you're walking in that guilt, and everybody knows about it. So imagine you're in the ancient world, and this is nailed to your front door. You can't pay it back, and no one's giving you any more credit. And so you're just stuck there. And then here's what would happen in the ancient world. People called benefactors would come by. And for a lot of complicated and layered reasons, a benefactor would decide, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go through this list, tally up the total amount, and I'm going to pay for this person's debt. And they would pay for that person's debt. They would go to all the creditors and they would say, how much does he owe? How much does she owe? And they would pay off the debt. And then here's what was so wild. Here's what they would do. After the debts were paid, they would take the piece of paper and they wouldn't throw it away because they wanted everyone to know that this wasn't just the paper was torn down. They would actually want everyone to know it's paid for. They would fold the piece of paper in half. They would double it over. And they would drive a nail through that piece of paper into the door. And they would write upon the paper, paid in full. They would take it. They would double it. They would write paid in full. So when you receive here that she, Jerusalem, the people of God have received from the Lord's hand double for all their sins. What God is saying is your debt is paid in full. It is completely forgiven. Not somewhat, mostly, sort of forgiven, completely forgiven. And if you, child of God, ever doubt that, you look to the cross of Jesus where he declares it is finished. That's what's spoken over your life. Can I give you a reason to not, not worry, number one? It's that your God has forgiven your sin fully, finally, and forever. That's what he's done over you, like fully. Do you get that God just, hasn't just forgiven the sins you've already committed? God has forgiven the sins you will commit this next weekend. God has already forgiven the sins you will commit in your 30s or your 40s or your 50s, if that's how long you get. Fully, like completely. All of the sin is already paid for on the cross. This is wild. God has no conception of time where he goes, well, we'll see if I can pay for the sins in the future. It's fully it's finally. Like, in other words, there's no, like, God going back on this. There's no God saying, well, I paid for your sin, but you are just a real disaster, so we're going to have to go back on that. It's full. It's final. And listen, it's forever. Like, it's locked in. There is nothing that can happen that can change the relationship you have between you and the God of the universe. Isn't that the greatest news ever? Well, like God just looks at you and just says, I approve. It's like this in my role here at the church. Uh, oftentimes I'll have to make a decision and that decision will oftentimes be something that I, I know someone's not gonna like. And so I'll tell the person, the, the employee sitting with me, uh, I'll say, listen, I, I've made this decision and I want you to go do this or that thing. So whatever the thing is. And, and sometimes they'll say to me something like, I'm gonna do that, but just so you know, um, he is not going to approve of what I'm gonna do. And here's the line I love to give as a boss, just giving cover to my employee. I say, listen, he may not approve, but I approve. So if he has a problem, tell him to come talk to me. And do you know that the God of the universe looks at you and says, I approve. And if anyone else has a problem, tell him to come talk to me. This is what God does. He approves over your life. Not because you're morally perfect or you never sin, but because on the cross of Jesus, your sin was fully, finally, and forever paid for. This is the good news. Listen, you get to walk through this life knowing that you and the creator of the universe are good. So why should what anyone else thinks scare you? Why should what anyone else thinks worries you? Like you and the creator of literally all things are good. And you're worried about like what some girl sitting like two desks down from you thinks? You're worried about what some person at your school thinks? You're worried about what some person online thinks? You and the God of the universe are good. See, it begins with this. Your sin has been paid for fully, finally, and forever. It goes on this way. In verse three, it says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight a path in the desert, a highway for our God. 
Every valley shall be raised up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll recognize that this is actually quoted in the early part of the Gospels uh, about John the Baptist, who's the one declaring in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But then I want you to notice the kind of way that's being prepared. What does it say? Make straight in the desert a highway. Every valley is being raised up. Every mountain is being brought low. What's happening here? There is a leveling that has happened. There is a leveling that has happened where all the high places are being brought down, the low places are being brought up, and then it says the glory of the Lord is revealed. Like in other words, do you see what God is doing even in the texture and the topography of the earth? He's straightening everything out. He's making everything right. This is a promise that God is going to make things right, and this is reason number two not to worry. Listen, there will be a day when the Lord God makes all things right. Like there is coming a day, that is what we look forward to in glory, that there will come a day where Jesus Christ cracks the sky, every eye will see him, every tongue will confess him as Lord, our bodies will be raised, and he will remake this earth. Like that's the actual end of the story we look forward to. And anytime we see injustice or pain or or deceit or, or corruption or terrible things going on in this world, our hearts should go, we're not yet in the world we will once occupy. There will come a day where this won't exist anymore where war and pain and famine and heartache and cancer are gone. Like, that's what God's going to do. It's like this uh, from time to time. Um, My four-year-old girl and my two-year-old will get themselves into a little fight. And and usually here's exactly how the fight goes. My princess four-year-old, amazing, innocent, oldest child who would never break a rule in her life is playing with, yeah, some of your oldest childs are like, "Mm, right? But but, but, but listen, she's just playing with a toy. And then my two-year-old boy who just think he owns the world will just walk up and take it out of her hand. And then the fight ensues. And she says, no, 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 give it back. And then he just wants whatever she has. And so the tussle ensues. And then I come up. And what do I do? In that moment, I try to discern what went wrong. Okay, she had the toy and he took it from her. So what am I going to do? I'm going to do two things in that moment. I am first going to make it right by giving the toy back to my daughter. I will take it out of my son's hand and hand it back to my daughter and say, you play with this. And then what's the second thing I am going to do? I am going to administer the hammer of justice to my son. No, you cannot take the toys, right? I'm going to do both things at once. I'm going to make all things right. I'm going to bring justice into the situation. And that's what our God's going to do someday. Like there's just going to come a day where Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. All things will be made new. All wickedness and unrighteousness, all rebellion against God will be exposed and put down forever. Like that day is coming. And so in the days I'm stressed out or worried or anxious about things, here's what I just have to remember. It's not permanent. This isn't forever. This is just a moment, a wisp, just smoke. This is just like mist coming off the lake. That's all this is. It's just for a moment. And God is going to make all things right. Meaning if you have been wounded in this world, if there's been injustice that was never brought to rights in this world, God is going to undo all of that in his new creation. So when I look at the world and I see all of the injustices throughout history, God's not just going to say like, eh, forget about that. In some way in his mystery and his sovereignty, He will make all things right. He will bring the high places down. He will bring the low places out. And I think for all of eternity, we will marvel at the justice and the goodness of God. Verse six says this, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like like grass and all of their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. When the grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. 
but the word of our Lord endures forever. Um, sometimes I just try to note like a verse to memorize. Verse eight is one of those. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of the Lord lasts forever. Like that's just something to plant inside of your heart because what's being said here, listen, there's this whole life we lead and all these ideas and all these people and all these cultures and societies and nations that are built up. There's all sorts of things that are said, but all of those things that says are like grass. They grow up, it seems so important. It seems like it's gonna last forever. And then it falls like a flower. It gets destroyed like nature is destroyed and remade into something new, but the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord endures forever. The word of God endures forever. Like in other words, God has something to say and it's gonna last forever. Like like there's nothing that we talk about that's gonna last forever other than like the human soul, the body that's gonna be resurrected forever and God's word. Nothing else lasts forever. And yet this is what we're told is gonna last forever. So here's reason not to worry, number three. Listen, you can know God's will through reading God's word. You know why you shouldn't be stressed out and anxious and worried about everything? You can know what God's up to in this world. I'm not saying you can know everything about God. I'm not saying there's no mystery. I'm not saying there's never a moment where you just have to trust God in his sovereignty and his goodness. I just don't think you're totally in the dark about what God's doing, unless you don't read his word then you will be completely in the dark about what God's doing. I just worry for some people, they're stressed out and they're anxious and they're just so um, worried about everything in this world. That's because they never read God's word. It's like the other day, um, we did this um, production uh, for Frozen Junior here at the church with all these kids and it was adorable and it was wonderful. But as I was walking in, that they hand me what they hand in most shows or productions or musicals, um, this little program, right? And the program's great because you can flip through and you can see like all the like, hey, thank you to this person and this person. You see the name of the cast. But I gotta tell you, in every program I've ever been handed, the most helpful thing for me uh, is the little scene thing where it's like scene number one, scene number two, here's what's happening. And it kind of lays it all out. And here's why. Um, I just got to admit to you, like, I'm not sophisticated enough to track with live musicals, okay? Like, I struggle, I'm watching, I'm like, what? What's going on? Like, I just struggle in those moments. And so here's what's great. I go to the little program, I'm like, oh, they're singing this. Oh, here's where we are. So it's almost like it orients me, like, oh, here's where we are in the show. And sometimes at my worst, it's like, oh, okay, we're about 60% through. Praise the Lord, we're almost there, right? Like, that's what's happening, right? Like, I'm reading in the thing, and it gives me a sense of where I am. And when I read the Bible, God does the exact same thing. When I read my Bible, God's like, here's where you are. When I read my Bible, God reminds me, like, remember, you're living in a broken world. Remember that people are sinful. Remember that people who don't follow Jesus are going to act like people who don't follow Jesus. Remember that people who do follow Jesus are sometimes going to struggle with sin, just like you do, Brian. Right? Like, when I read my Bible, I'm reminded of what God says about the world. And so when I'm stressed out and anxious, I need to remind myself that there's actually a place I can go. There's a book I can open to understand what's going on in the world and why I don't need to panic. Verse nine goes on this way. It says, you who bring good news to Zion, go up to a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift your voice with a loud shout, lift it up and do not be afraid and say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Verse 10, see the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd and he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those, uh, he gently leads those who have young. I, I love the paragraph we just read. And I hope you recognize at the beginning, verses 9 and 10, it's talking about this is your God. It's the sovereign Lord, and he's coming with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. And then what does it jump into? 
Uh, yeah, he's also like a guy holding a sheep close to his heart. Right, right, like this is our God. He is tough and he is powerful and he is sovereign and he is mighty over all things. And he also holds you close to his heart like you would a child. Like this is the remarkable thing about our God. So, 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 so what's reason number four not to worry? Reason number four not to worry is that the almighty God is also our gentle shepherd. Like the almighty God, the creator of the universe, the sovereign God of all things also holds you like he holds a lamb to his heart, right? Like it says like he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. So, so like think about it this way. So um, I, I am obviously not God, right? But, but con- compared to my one month old baby girl, I'm like pretty close, right? Just given like she has no neck strength and can't do this, right? And I'm a functioning adult most of the time, okay? So, so when I hold her, like, the power imbalance here isn't like, mm, it's pretty close, you know? Like, like even when I hurt, hold my four-year-old, there's a little bit of, like, resistance, and she can kind of move or, or whatever. But when I hold my one-month-old, it's just like, I win every time. Wherever I want her to go, I'm like, I'm placing you here. If I wanted to put her in the fridge, I, I haven't, okay? Right? But I could do whatever because I'm so much more powerful. And yet in all of the power I have over her, like no one here should be surprised to know how gently I hold her, how gently I rock her, how gently I whisper to her, how much I love her and I'm with her and I pray with her. And when I hold her, I don't like grab her and like swing her around by her legs. Like I'm holding her close to my heart. Why? Because I'm way more powerful, but I'm also someone who holds her close to my heart. This is what God does. God is the powerful, sovereign God of the universe. Do not play with him. Do not mock him. Do not belittle our God. He is more powerful than you could possibly imagine. And yet he holds you close to his heart. So like some of you have just convinced yourself that because you're stressed out, anxious, worried, going through a hard time, it means that God is distant. I want to suggest to you it's the opposite, that in the moments of your greatest stress, God holds you close. When do I hold my baby most? When she's peaceful? No, I let her sleep when she's peaceful. When she starts crying and she is in pain and needing help, that's when I hold her close to my heart. I want to suggest to you right now that if you're overwhelmed, stressed out, anxious, that the God of the universe actually in this moment is holding you close to his heart. And if you would recognize that, I believe it would eviscerate your worry. It goes on this way in verse 12. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or the breadth of his hand is marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him or, or taught him the right way? Who is it that taught him knowledge or showed him understanding? Verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as if they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, the nations are as nothing. They are regarded to him as worthless and less than nothing. But like, look at this here. It says that Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. You want to know what's true about Lebanon? Trees everywhere. And, and God's just like, that, that, that won't even do for your fires. Verse 15, he says, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Verse 17, he says, the nations are nothing. Like all the nations of the earth stacked up against God. It's not, it, it's not even like one versus the other. It's just like nothing versus everything. So, so, so what should this remind us of? Here's what it should remind us of. Reason not to worry, number five. The Lord our God is the sovereign king over nations. The Lord our God is the sovereign king over nations. And we need to remember this over and over and over again. Listen, there is a war going on in Ukraine right now. And I want to remind us that God is not like, oh, what's that? 
God's not surprised. God's not overwhelmed. God's not like, oh, how did that happen? That slipped off my radar. God knows exactly what is happening. And listen, I may not like it. I may not understand it. I may have to just trust that God is doing something here, but there is nothing happening in this world in any nation that is not filtered through God's hand. And then let me put it this way, um, a little more cutely for us. Um, I don't know if you've looked at the calendar, um, but this is an even year, 2022, uh, which means we're going into an election this fall. And and can I just prep you? I have no idea what everything's going to look like. I'm just 100% certain we're going to go into this election and someone somewhere is going to tell you it is the most important election that has ever happened in the history of the world. And you will go on cable news channels and you will go on social media and you will go on the internet and you will look at newspapers if you do that type of thing. And what you will find is that people are panicked, 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 panicked. Can I tell you how the world kind of looks in every single election year? Here's what you should see. This photo right here. This is the world every election year. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. Save your lives. Run, run, run. If this person doesn't get elected, if this people don't take the Senate, if this people lose the Senate, if this happens, everything in your life is going to fall apart. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. And you know what the great tragedy is? That Christians are experts at saying this to get you afraid. And how dare we, how dare we as the children of God buy into this chicken little, the sky is falling type of attitude? How dare we be the type of people who think that the sovereign God of the universe is not filtering everything through his hand? Can I tell someone's heart tonight that the sky is not falling? Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, and he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is king over presidents and prime ministers and senates and houses and local dog catchers. He is king over everything. Like, I just want us to be a people here at this church that as we go into this fall, we're going to vote. We may even talk about what we're doing. We may care about the issues. I'm for all of that. But if you have bought into the ghastly lie that the sky is falling, that everything's going to fall apart, that God has lost control, that we need to step in because if we don't start acting like the world, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. You don't know the God I know because the God I know is sovereign over all things and nothing will happen in our nation. Nothing will happen in our state and nothing will happen in our community that is not filtered through his sovereign hand. See, God is the God over nations. They are nothing compared to him. It says in verse 18, this, it says, with whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As an idol for metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot and they look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Like in other words, like are you going to compare God to a little statue of metal or a statue of wood? Of course you're not. Verse 21, have you not, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you since the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heaven like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Verse 26, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them forth each by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So so I hope you're catching this. 
Like God's just going, listen, uh, yeah, the sky, I spread it out. The earth, I created it. Everything's mine. And then just in case you didn't get the grandness of this, he's talking about all the stars and he's going, I'm in charge of those too. Like, let me give you number six, not to worry. The Lord, our God is the sovereign king over nature. He is the sovereign king over nature. It's not just that he rules people and individuals and their hearts. It's that everything God does controls every single part of nature. Like, I want to put it to you this way, Ty. Um, I want to show you a photo um, taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. And this was uh, taken a few years back. And what you're looking at is not a cluster of stars. What you are looking at is a cluster of galaxies. Every point of light in this picture is not a star. It's an entire galaxy. And the most recent estimates actually says that there might be as many as 2 trillion galaxies in our universe. 2 trillion galaxies. And in each and every single one of those galaxies, there are 100 million stars. Like, you just try to get your mind around that. And here's what God is saying. 2 trillion galaxies, 100, million, 100 billion stars in each. I don't even want to try to do the math on that. I don't even know how you do the math on that, right? My calculator breaks at that point. And here's what God is saying. Just so you know, I created every single one. God's saying, just so you know, I created every single one and I put them in relation to one another. Where they are, that was my idea. I put it together. And then just so he can cap it off, he says, I've named each and every one of them. So you think that's just a random star, but God goes, no, I named that one and that one. And in fact, I named all of them. This is the God of the universe who stretches out his arms over two trillion galaxies, a hundred million stars in each. And we actually have the nerve to worry about whether or not God can help us with our problems. But like, that's crazy to me. And yet I do that. I get all stressed out and worked out. I'm like, God, like, I know you're powerful, but like, how am I going to deal with this drama in my family? Like, I, so it's like, God's just going, no, I got this thing. I'm sovereign over nature. I'm sovereign over all things. The starry host, not a single one of them is missing. See, God knows exactly what he's doing. Verse 27, it goes on this way. It says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Like verse 27 is basically like, why are you complaining? Why are you worried that God's not going to come through? Why are you thinking that God doesn't notice you? Can I tell you this is actually super ancient? Like for thousands of years, people have thought God has forgotten about me. God doesn't care. If you've experienced that, that's not abnormal. That's biblical. Verse 28, it says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar like uh, soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk, and they will not grow faint. Uh, like in other words, have you not heard? Do, do you not know? that the sovereign God over heaven and earth is actually interested in your life, not just vaguely the lives of people out there, but in your life and in your circumstances and in your family and your health and your finances, your education, your career, your future marriage. God is interested in all of it. And here's what this text is telling us. Reason not to worry, number seven. The Lord's strength is available for you right now. Not someday. Not someday when your faith grows. Not someday where you get over that thing. Like right now, in this room, tonight, God's strength is available for you. Like God has the ability to fill you with his strength and fill you with his courage. Uh, I was thinking about it this way. Um, uh, last week, I got this random DM on Instagram. And usually when I get a random DM from a person I don't really know, I'm like, incoming criticism, right? Right, I just like feel like that's coming my way. But it was the opposite. 
It was this person that I have never met, and they follow me online, and they just say, listen, we've never met. I just want to encourage you. So blessed by your ministry. So blessed by what you're doing. Keep it up. Keep following Jesus. I'm praying for you today. And here's what was crazy. Like, random stranger lady on the internet just, like, filled me with courage. Like, 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 I just took that and I just read this random message by this woman I'll never meet. And I was so encouraged, so blessed, so built up. It was just such a blessing to me. And here's what I think. I think that's happened to some of you where someone just speaks something over you and it fills you with courage. That's what to encourage someone is. It is to put courage into them. And here's what I was thinking about as I was writing this sermon. I was like, if random internet lady on Instagram DM can fill me with courage, why would I not think that God's doing the exact same thing to me? Like, that's what God's doing. And God cares about me and knows me and has far more power than random internet lady on Instagram. Like, like God can fill me with his courage. He can fill me with his strength. He can fill me with the capacity to say the world is jacked up and messed up and there's all kinds of reason to worry. I just don't have to walk in that. Like, like that's what God fills me with. Reason number seven not to worry is literally like today, that strength is available for you. And I just want to ask if everyone in this room actually knows that strength. And if you don't know that strength, I want you to know there is a God who loves you and sees you and invites you to be filled with his spirit, filled with his strength, trusting in his word, that all of the promises I've talked about tonight can be applied to you. Like this is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is God looks at you and says, despite your sin, your failure, your wandering, all of the things you've done, despite how long it's been since you've been in church, I want you in my family. And tonight, I just want to invite you toward that. Like every time we end YA, I stand right out there in the lobby. If you're not even sure you have a relationship with this God and you want to talk to me about that, I just want to welcome you to do that. Come talk to me tonight. Like, just come tell me your story. We can pray together. I can pray for you. I can pray with you. Maybe tonight's the night you receive Jesus and say, tonight is the night. I want to know that kind of strength and that kind of hope. So here's what I want us to know. That there are all sorts of reasons for people to be worried and stressed out and anxious and overwhelmed in this world. And yet what I've tried to list tonight is a number of reasons why that doesn't have to be the case for you. And why if you are a child of God and you know God's love and you know his forgiveness in Jesus, it should not be the case for you. That rather than walking in sin, you would walk in the confidence of who God is as revealed here in Isaiah chapter 40. Now, here's what I know. Um, When I give a sermon like seven reasons to this, six ways to this, here's what I've just always understood. Um, Most of you, by the time you get in your car tonight, will forget it. Like the elite ones of you, by the time your head hits the pillow, something will be rolling around. And there's maybe like one of you two years from now, they'll be like, you had a great line there, right? Like you're going to forget all of this. And so why do I give a sermon like this? Like like why give a sermon if I know things are going to be forgotten? Here's the reason. I want to talk about the goal of this sermon. The goal tonight is location, not memorization. The goal tonight is location, not memorization. What do I mean by that? The goal is not that you would memorize my seven points. I'm not even sure I've memorized my seven points, all right? The, the goal is not, you're like, here's the seven reasons I shouldn't stress. And maybe you've written them down, but the goal isn't that you memorize them. Listen, the goal is location. What do I mean by that? I hope that the next time you are overwhelmed with a circumstance in your life, the next time you're stressed out, the next time you feel your blood pressure rising, the next time you just feel so overwhelmed with the world, I hope that you would remember the location of Isaiah chapter 40 and that you would go read this for yourself. And in fact, can I give you an assignment the next time you're stressed out? The next time you're worried, because some of you are like, stressed out. I'm never stressed out. And then like tomorrow morning, I'm like, what do I do? You know, the next time you're stressed out, here's what I want you to do. 
Go to Isaiah chapter 40. Just open it up in your own Bible. If you're like, I don't own a Bible, we can help fix that. Like, come find us, right? Or open it up on your phone or on the computer, wherever you're at. Open up to Isaiah chapter 40. And here's what I want you to do the next time you're stressed out and worried. I want you to create a good old-fashioned T-graph. Can we put this up here on the screen? Here's what I want you to create. Left column, reasons not to worry. Right column, reasons to worry. And then I want you to read Isaiah chapter 40, and you don't have to use my seven, but I want you to just start to list as you see things, here are reasons not to worry. So again, if I were doing it based on the sermon tonight, I would put these seven items in the left column. Sin, fully, finally forgiven. God's gonna make everything right. You can know his word. We have a gentle shepherd, sovereign king over nations, sovereign king over nature, and the Lord's strength is available for you right now. You put that in the left column. And then here's what I actually want you to do. I want you to go over to this here right column. And I want you to write down what you're stressed out about. And I'm not being like, oh, put this and then go, oh, I'm not worried about anything. No, I'm worried that I might lose my job because they said layoffs might be coming. I'm worried that my mom might actually be really sick and she might not make it. I'm going to put it in that column. I'm worried that I'm, I'm not going to get married because... I always thought by 23, I'd be in a relationship. I always thought by 28, I always thought I'd be married. And I'm just worried that's just not going to happen for me. So I'm going to put that in there. I've always worried that I'm not going to have that kind of job or have that kind of life. I've always been worried about my health. Whatever you want to put in there, put your reasons to worry. And then here's what I just want you to do. I want you to give an honest look at that list. And if you can actually tell me with full confidence that the things on the right outweigh the things on the left, go ahead and worry. But I'm going to tell you, when I look at this list and I write down the things that stressed or worried me out today, the things I was anxious about this morning while I was getting ready for my day, I have to confess that they look really small and silly compared to this. So again, my goal tonight is not that you would just remember all these seven. It's that you would return yourself to Isaiah chapter 40, that you would return to the scriptures to see what God has to say about himself. Listen, the reason you should not worry is not some clever phrase or idea. The reason you should not worry is because when you look at God, anxiety, fear, and worry evaporates. It evaporates. So what have I learned throughout my life? It's not that I never have a worry. It's not that I never get worried or anxious or never have a moment where I feel stressed out about something. I've just learned this over the course of my life. And here's what I've learned. I hope it's true for you, that my confidence comes from considering Jesus. That's what I've learned. Like, I can be confident in every situation, not because of Brian Howard, not because of my strength, not because of my wisdom, not because of my education, my connections. All of those things are silly and small compared to Jesus. But when I fix my eyes on Jesus, I start to see worry and stress and anxiety and fear evaporate inside of me. Not because there's not scary stuff out there, but because I know the one who says I am greater. I have overcome the world. I want to close by reading a scripture about fixing our eyes on Jesus. Our, our worship band will make their way up. And as always, um, we're going to close in song and we're going to close in singing. And um, the danger every time we end a sermon and just go into singing is that we just kind of click into like, that's what we're supposed to do. But again, if like my confidence comes from considering Jesus, like let these next two songs just be this time where your heart is set on Jesus. Your eyes are fixed on him. You just release whatever's going on and say, Jesus, I want to set my eyes on you. Because that's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance 
endurance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then here's the final sentence. Consider him. Think about him. Dwell on him. Sing to him. Talk about him. Write things down about him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Jesus so that you will not walk in the sin of weariness, that you will not walk in the sin of worry. So again, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna sing, but I wanna invite everyone across this room, close your eyes, bow your heads. Let's just have a moment before the Lord. And here's what I'm gonna ask all across this room. Um, I opened the sermon tonight by saying that the most frequent command in the Bible is that we would not worry, that we would not panic, that we would not fear, that we would not be anxious for anything. I said the habitual worrying is actually sin. And when I talk about sin, I want to give people an opportunity to grow out of that sin. And the only way we grow out of that sin is through the tool God has given us, and that tool is called repentance. And tonight, I want to ask if anyone needs to repent of the sin of habitual worrying. You're a worrier. You're always worried. You're always stressed. You're always anxious. You almost wear it like that's your identity. And tonight, I just want to invite someone to forsake that identity and instead choose what God has for them. Instead, choose the life God has. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's simple. I'm not saying you don't have crazy things going on in your life. But here's what I want to ask. All across this room, eyes closed, head bowed. If you would say tonight, I need to repent of the sin of worry, I want you to slip your hand right up into the air. All over this room, repentance is happening. There's no shame. Jesus already nailed that to the cross. There's no guilt. Jesus already said it's finished. Keep your hand up. I want to pray for you right now. I want to pray for you, and then I'm going to ask us all after I say amen to stand and sing our hearts out to a God who says, whatever worry, whatever fear, you don't have to live in that anymore. So Father in heaven, thank you for tonight, and thank you for these men and women raising their hands. God, thank you that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Thank you that it is your goodness that causes us to turn. Thank you that on the cross, Jesus said it is finished over the sin that is being acknowledged in this room right now. God, I recognize the pain and the hurt and the anxiety and the fear in this world that is just so widespread. And I ask that we would be a people here in this space, in this church, in this room that set our eyes on you. And God, for the moments where I fail to do that and the moments where I fall short, would you turn my eyes, turn my head, turn my attention to Jesus that I might be filled with his confidence and filled with his faith. So God, I pray that we would be a people who forsake worry. I pray that we would be a people who are not afraid. God, may we be anxious for nothing because we know the God who is over all things. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said real loud, amen. Let's stand and sing.